What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. What happens? You're about to find out. It's another episode of Notes from an Artist. And yes, it's another episode of Notes from an Artist. I'm your host, Tom Semioli, and my co-host is... Sir David C. Gross. Now, and is it fair that I... the one listener for coming back to listen to the show again. Now, let's not... Um... Confuse our audience member. I said I am the host. Actually, I am the co-host. We are both equal co-hosts, so there is no, um, you know, we're, we're a socialist. Uh, to, we're a socialist radio show. David, part two of our yes. interview with Aiden Levy. The book is called a "Saxophone Colossus: The Life and Music of Sonny Rollins." This is part two of our two-part interview. This book is out now on Hatchet Books. It came out in December of 2022. It is a 784 exhaustive review of the life and times of Sonny Rollins. Fascinating stuff, David. Oh, it's excellent. It's excellent. And one of the things I would suggest, not only listening to the music at the end of this show, but cite the particular songs when you're reading the book and it really brings new meaning to all of that it's it's a great read it's a great read with listen and most importantly if you folks didn't hear last week's episode tom tell them what they've won tell them what they've won they've won the right to listen to our podcast if you don't catch our show live on www.signalsradio.com every monday night at 8 p.m on the planet earth galaxies thereabouts, you can log on to our podcast and become a member of our podcast, which is available on Buzzsprout, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, and wherever podcasts are potted. If you want to follow all the goings on of Notes of an Artist, well, heck, go to notesofanartist.com. You can see us on YouTube. We have a YouTube page, probably, and not the title Notes of an Artist. And you can follow us on Facebook. Yes, everybody's favorite platform. Even Mr. Zuckerberg follows us on Facebook. Without further fondue, let's get to our guest, Aiden Levy. I got in touch with a guy who had this, this study. I found out that he had a letter from Sonny in 1961 during his bridge sabbatical, right before he came down from the Williamsburg Bridge. Right. And I thought, well, what is this going to be? And the story behind it was that this guy was like a college sophomore and he wrote Sonny Rollins a letter and just sent it off into the void because Sonny had vanished from the scene and nobody really knew where he was. Right, somehow, before the uh, internet where you could... <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so somehow he got a hold of this address and he just sent it off into the void, not expecting a response. And the idea was to um, have Sonny provide his thoughts on the jazz scene and the role of jazz in our society for for research for his term paper. Okay. And Sonny wrote back this like seven page handwritten response that the guys of course saved all these years. But I mean, that that's Sonny Rollins for you that it, a total stranger, a college kid. And mm. Sonny puts all this time into this response, thinking about what is the role of jazz in our society? And 
of course, with no sense that, uh, you know, about 60 years later, a lot of that letter would appear in a book. Wow. Well, well we, we note, right, with, when you talk about Freedom Suite, which is really the first civil rights album of the hard bop era, and that he would go to colleges to play, and some people would be in tune with his music, but not necessarily his politics. That's right. So when Sonny wrote the Freedom Suite, it was in part a response to the fact that he had so much trouble getting an apartment in New York in the late 50s, mm. even though he had become an icon of the music sure, already. It was, yeah, sure. And just a, a lifetime of injustices. Uh, so he felt it was time for there to be a response through the music. Now, the musicians had already been a part of the, of the civil rights struggle and, and always had, but during the hard bop era, nobody had explicitly made the statement on an album. Right. So Sonny did that. And he wrote the Freedom Suite, which is a through composed piece. Uh, it's more than 15 minutes long. And it also incorporates improvisation. Right. He recorded it with Max Roach and Oscar Pettiford, the bassist. And um, he'd also worked with them on Thelonious Monk's uh, Brilliant Corners. And this is another album that Sonny made in the pianist trio setting. Uh, but Freedom Suite made this political statement and not just through the music, also through the liner notes. Sonny wrote the liner notes to this piece and it's a, a succinct statement that encap encapsulates everything he stands for in the music of the role of the artist in the struggle for social justice and the uh, cruel irony of American culture being so, indebted to black culture, but, uh, rewarding, um, rewarding the black community with injustice. Um, that's kind of paraphrasing it here, but, uh, but look that up. It, it's really just a beautiful statement. Yeah. Now, after and the record, the record gets reissued with a different, yeah, the, the record gets re and the, the, and the liner notes are wiped off. The liner notes are wiped off. Uh, right. but I like to think that that Sonny kind of got the last laugh there because the cover art for the re-release shadow waltz, which was also done on yes, Riverside right. you has this it. portrait shot by a photographer named Joe Alper, where I think Sonny bears a striking resemblance to Frederick right. Douglass. Frederick Douglass. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> what, what was it like, uh, take us uh, for our audience. What was it like making a living as a jazz musician in the 1950s when we, we, you know, well, of course this is the famous where Sonny takes his step backs and takes a sabbatical, but how mm -hmm. could he possibly afford to do that? What was Lucille the primary source of uh, his, I guess, financial bedrock of the family? Yes, mm. absolutely. So in the early fifties, there wasn't much money to be had. Um, it, it wasn't so radically different from, how it is now financially. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes we imagine that in the golden age of jazz or in the hard bop era that, you know, maybe there was like money floating around somewhere, but that's not exactly the case. Right. I mean, maybe there were well, there was more money, gigs here and there. It just wasn't for the musicians. Right. <laughs> I mean, exactly. yeah, certainly rents were cheaper and things and, and artists, but artists still had to have patrons. I mean, still, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, yeah, 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 
of course. Um, you know, so uh, Monk was supported by uh, Nika, the Jazz Baroness, right? Um, and you know, I mean, they they did start to be able to make a living and and sometimes a good living as musicians. I mean, if, if Thelonious Monk, you know, toward the end of his career, became uh, you know the genius Thelonious Monk that was revered uh, right. across the world. But they had to really uh, toil in the salt mines for a long time. And, and that, that was Sonny's experience, just living True. out of suitcases, doing one-nighters up and down this circuit that went from New York um, up through like Toronto. And, uh, you know, so how did he take that sabbatical in 1959 yeah i mean he had the support of his wife lucille sure she had a job as an administrative um assistant at nyu right and she was able to support him he also still had some royalties from the music but they lived very frugally during that period um prior to that he was actually doing well uh mm. before he took that sabbatical uh, in the early fifties, it was tougher, but by the time he took that sabbatical, he was really earning a lot of money for his appearances. So the decision to step away wasn't like a, you know, screw this. Um, like nobody appreciates me here. Like right. he was getting accolades at that time. Yeah. It was at the he height was of appearing his at festivals. He was yeah. exactly. And I as mean, you he, mentioned, he, uh, he, he felt a bit embarrassed. Yes. And it was a brave move on his part. Oh. I thought, I want to improve. And the only way for me to improve is to step away. I mean, mm -hmm. for God's sakes, that's that's just a, an incredible, incredible uh, confidence. Oh, yeah. Really the confidence, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really a lot of confidence. But also, at the same time, he's always been his own worst critic. Yeah. So he just he didn't think that he was living up to the hype. He just didn't think so. Yeah. And I think the experience of being up there on the Williamsburg bridge, just blowing out into the expanse was something that he still cherishes uh, because it gave him that the opportunity to really work on himself. And when he was up there, he wasn't just working on the music. He was doing calisthenics. Yes. Right. He was doing chin-ups mm -hmm. on the bridge. Uh, he got involved with different spiritual figures. He started um, looking into Rosicrucianism. He had this collection of um, inspirational quotes that he would transcribe by hand and keep in like a briefcase in uh, one of the rooms where he also used to practice. It would have things by like John Donne, um, the, the metaphysical poet, uh, right. just, you know. As a matter of fact, I ended up um, picking up Mansions of the Soul. I wanted to figure out, all right, wh what is Aiden talking about here? What, what's <laughs> oh, yeah. funny thinking? Really, some interesting mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, no, it, it is some interesting stuff. It's pretty out there. Sonny uh, kind of wasn't sure how he felt about it at the end of the day um, after he um, came down from the bridge and started investigating um, like Eastern religion, he felt that, you know, he'd seen advertisements for the Rosicrucians in comic books and, uh, you know, anything you see advertised in a comic book, how serious could it be? Right. But uh, there, I mean, there was, there was a lot that he took out of Rosicrucianism, I think. 
And, um, you know, he wanted to borrow from the best of all religious traditions and spiritual traditions. So, yeah, he took another sabbatical in 1968 to go to India. He'd had that in his mind for a while to go and look into that. So he spent about five months in an ashram um, studying with this uh, this Swami out there. Um, the ashram was run by a guy, a Swami named Chinmayananda. And the ashram is still there. It's called uh, uh, Chinmaya Mission. Uh, but when Sunny arrived, uh, Chinmayananda was not there. There was this um, fellow who was managing the ashram named Partha Sarathi. And Partha Sarathi is also a lifelong student of Vedanta, and he's still alive. So I, I was able to interview him for the book. And um, yeah, he has this, he has a school that he's running in India called uh, Vedanta Academy. And um, I think he's about 95 or 96 now. But uh, yeah, I mean, Partha Sarathi took Sunny to see Bismillah Khan perform while he was in India. And this was an influence on Sunny. Uh, he also has a, uh, Sunny has a song called Pawai. And that's the location of the ashram. You can only hear that. It's kind of like a, a Sonny Rollins deep cut that you can hear on this uh, album that was only released in Japan, I believe called Sonny Rollins in Japan from mm. 1973. Mm. But yeah, I mean, that time in India was hugely important to him and he's still, he's still studying Vedanta. Mm. Okay. And then of course the sixties had to be, an even tougher time for jazz musicians because it's the rockier. You know, and, and, and right, jazz. right, exactly. Even though so uh, much, it was a tremendous era artistically in jazz. It must have, it really must have bottomed out because you had rock clubs. And, if, you know, mm-hmm. up, up until the time Bill Graham started booking jazz acts with rock bands, but that didn't happen until really the end of the 60s and into the 70s. Right. Yeah, I mean, there there was this question in the critical establishment and in the music industry of, well, can jazz survive this and how will it look mm. and um they started to embrace legacy acts more sure. uh so i think this this was tough on new music uh that was not in in the rock paradigm sure. and i think that this contributed to sunny's disillusionment with the record industry starting in the mid to late 60s and ultimately led him to step away from it again and take that trip to India. But you brought up Bill Graham and, um, you know, one of the kind of interesting moments in Sonny's career is when he participated in this group called the Milestone Jazz Stars. Okay. And the idea was to put together a jazz super group that in no way was doing fusion and organize a tour that would go to different venues that mostly did rock concerts. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Bill Graham was, uh, was involved with this and it was actually, it was a hit. Um, they released an album based on that afterwards, but I mean, they were selling out these concert halls. This was mm-hmm. in the late seventies 
with Ron Carter, McCoy Tyner, and right, drummer Al Foster. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that was kind of an answer to this commercial question of uh, is there still a market for jazz? And, you know, of course there always was, but it's it's not the same size, but it's there. It is, and, and uh, it is. And I was exposed to jazz. I mean, I came up of age in the 70s, so I was exposed to Sonny Rollins. One of the reasons why was that he had an electric bassist, mm-hmm. uh, Bobby Cranshaw, and I could never figure out, wow, he's an old jazz guy. He was an old jazz guy in the 70s, and that he would opt for an electric bass player, which was pretty bold, uh, I thought. Or was it, David, you thought it was a matter of economics? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it, uh, to have a, an upright traveling with you would be a, an expensive thing. And uh, Was I right or was I wrong? Um, I, I don't think it was an economic decision and many people were disappointed to see Sonny playing with an upright bassist. Of course, the bassist was Bob Cranshaw, who also sure, who plays upright. Yeah. Was, he plays upright too. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, Cranshaw had some kind of injury at some oh, point okay. and he couldn't really do upright anymore. Okay. So he, he switched to electric and um, Sonny wanted to use Bob Cranshaw. I mean, they had okay. this 50-year relationship, relationship yeah. that, I mean, Cranshaw was really the rock in the band. Yes. And um, if you wanted to play upright, if you wanted to play electric, then, you know, that would just be what it would be. Um, but so that's I what think appealed many... to me as a young person, yeah. because now you could actually hear the walking bass lines. They weren't mm-hmm. buried in the mix. I mean, now we have remastered CDs so we could hear everything. And then I right. saw a video of Bobby Cranshaw with the Sonny at, towards the end of Bobby's life, and he was playing an extended range. He was playing a five-string uh, mm-hmm. electric. So, yes, so for a young jazz, for a young musician myself in the 70s, seeing I saw Sonny with Bob Cranshaw, I think it was at the Calderon Concert Hall. And, yes, wow, he's got an electric bass player. Okay, so we can do this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think many people thought that it was a response to commercial pressures. Okay. That, oh, Sonny wants to play with a backbeat now. And, right. you know, he wants like a funk bassist with him. <laughs> um, but I, it did allow him that expanded range. Sure. But I mean, I think really it was just that Cranshaw was playing electric. And mm-hmm. I mean, he, it's not like Cranshaw was the only electric bassist that Sonny ever performed with. Right, right. But, um, you know, that that's kind of how it started. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, interesting you know, that we were saying something about rock music and it's interesting we're um, interviewing uh, Richard uh, Colota next week. He just did the Holy Ghost Albert Eiler book, yeah. which I suggest you read. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And in the beginning of the book, he says it's, it's interesting how many rock guitar players were really in love with Albert Eiler. Mm-hmm. We'll get mm-hmm. more into that, you know, with that interview. But I, I, for me, and so when Bitches Brew first came out, I was listening to a lot of electric music, but it gave me, and a, a lot of musicians, a lot of people, they went backwards from there. Right. To the kind of blues, to the sketches of Spain and so what. Mm-hmm. So, I was working at this record store right by Carnegie Hall called um, The Record Hunter. 
and the manager was moving to Mexico and he had this stack of records. So the very first uh, Sonny Rollins record I heard was Our Man in Jazz. Hmm. And he also had uh, East Broadway Rundown. Hmm. So my first immersion in, in, in Sonny was uh, pianoist bands. And right. I obviously went back from that, you know, the bridge, uh, way out West. Those were like my four biggies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, obviously the name of the book is saxophone Colossus, which is the album that came out in 56. Uh, and when you, when you put the record on for the first time, it sounds like it's piano lists at the beginning, uh, he he always had that non-harmonic sort of, as you're saying, changes kind of thing. And what what was interesting to me about in 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 really studying your book, the the Coleman Hawkins and the the, the Sunny Run, they were much more changes oriented in terms of arpeggios and such, mm-hmm. which really is the way bass players should think. I've always thought that bass players, a, a, a C major scale is really C, E, G, B, D. It's all in thirds. Right. Because that's right, how right. you articulate what you're doing. So mm-hmm. in, in its own way, Sonny was really uh, trailblazing something that, that became the norm. Oh, yeah, for sure. And just thinking about Sonny versus Train, uh, you know, Sonny um, was quoted as saying that he thought that students of the music might do better to follow Coltrane because you could distill what he was doing to certain exercises or formulas. Uh Not to say that it could be reduced to that. It can't be. But that because Sonny was not, as a vertical of a player, you might say mm-hmm. that he was maybe more of a, a horizontal player, more, more lyrical, that it might be harder to, you know, to try to play like Sonny to figure out different um, licks, let's say that you might be able to apply to your own improvisation. So, yeah, I mean, this is something that Sonny heard in Lester Young who was, was a very lyrical player. And um, Sonny kind of synthesized that with what he heard in Coleman Hawkins and made his own style out of all of that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you still hear arpeggios delineating chords, but um, what Sonny became known for was uh, thematic improvisation. And this is a concept that Gunther Schuller um, writes about in a, an essay called Sonny Rollins and the Challenge of Thematic Improvisation that was published in 1958. And it's based on Blue 7 from Saxophone Colossus. And the idea there is that Sonny is not just arpeggiating the blues and the melodies improvised as well but that he's developing motifs across his extended solo and that it becomes this lyrical 
melody and, and then series of kind of counter melodies on the blues. So, yeah, I mean, he he always had that style. I mean, I, I love what you were saying that when you listen back, that you start to hear these traces of what he was doing later, that you would hear some of our man in jazz on the work from the fifties, because I I think that that seed was already there. Um, But yeah, I mean, he, he was always a melodic player. He always wanted to learn the lyrics to the standards that he played. He became known for interpreting the great American songbook. And he felt it was important to learn the lyrics. If you listen to this, outtake from way out west that's on one of the recent reissues you hear him talking about that and and singing part of i'm an old cow i definitely wanted to bring that up with you because uh i i don't remember where the interview was but someone asked uh uh lester young how come you play the way you do and he Mm -hmm. goes i listen to the lyrics and then when in the chapter on way out west it, it became perfectly clear. Uh, that, oh, yeah. yeah that, that's definitely uh, the thing there. Yeah, absolutely. He got a lot of that from Lester Young, or Charlie Parker's another one who would learn the lyrics. Uh, Charlie Parker loved all the things you are, but he referred to it as a y- tag, uh, like an acronym, Y-A-T-A-G, mm-hmm. which was a reference to one of the lyrics in that song, You Are the Angel Glow. Uh, so yeah, I mean, they, they had this sense that they were interpreting not just the melody, but also the lyrics. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Really. Uh, again, uh, the book is, uh, an important thing for most anyone to read saxophonist, drummer, or our listener. Right, Tom? Our listener, dare we say. Interesting to learn that Sonny, Sonny was uncomfortable in the recording studio because he was such a perfectionist. And um, uh, you say that Sonny's read the drafts of the book, but he hasn't read the whole book yet. Or probably would be difficult to read a book about yourself this deep. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it would be difficult. And I think reading the book would be almost like listening to playback for Sonny. Right. which he once said was like Abu Ghraib. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, he also, another quote was that uh, playing in a studio is, it's like cyber sex. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, he, he has the book. Um, he also got an early draft of the book that I right. sent him in this thick binder, the thickest binder that I could find. Right. And I know that he's read part of it because he was able to make some corrections, but the the way that um, we did that was that I just uh, talked through the entire book, everything that happens in it over a series of conversations. So he made additions or if he had any corrections, um, he, he would, he would tell me about that. And a lot of that made it into the book. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I doubt that he'll read the whole thing cover to cover. I mean, that might be kind of like, uh, you know, the Albert Brooks movie, Defending Your Life. 
(laughs) (laughs) Excellent analogy. Well, what do you, what do you hope readers come away with when they uh, read this book? I know the Lou book was a little bit controversial. I saw some uh, pretty nasty things written on amazon i enjoyed the book i people don't like to have their heroes you know there's the myth separating the myth from the fact you know Mm -hmm. and um you know that's what journalism is supposed to do okay we don't see very much of it anymore but that's what journalism is supposed to do and you present the facts and let the people decide for themselves that's what journalism is supposed to be what what do you think people are going to come away with what do you want them to come away with from this book well, I I hope that they see how hard uh, Sonny worked throughout his life, that he was somebody who always was striving to improve, mm. that he's still striving to improve, that uh, he's always learning. Um, you know, I want them to get a sense of this great music that he made right. and how hard he worked at it. Uh, so... You know, the book starts with the rhythm and it ends with the idea of learning. Um, Those are kind of the first and last words of this book. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a simple concept to, to bring it down to, but, but it all comes back to that. Just uh, practice, 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 and then keep coming back and try to get it right the next time. Yeah, yeah, and then of course accolades. now we know that yeah. Sonny has uh, retired at this point. How is he feeling? Um, I think that I mean the way he talks about it. Oftentimes, he's feeling better than ever. Mm-hmm. That after he couldn't play anymore, it was hard on him, and he was depressed for a while because he spent almost his entire life playing the saxophone. It had become like, uh, you know, a, a third arm almost had become a part of him. And to have to give that up well, was like losing a part of yourself. I mean, I think it, it's got to be kind of like the ache of a phantom limb. Sure. But eventually he realized that he had the opportunity to make that music. He did what he did and he said what he said and that that chapter was was behind him. He went deeper and deeper into his spiritual beliefs and that's what he's doing now. So when he said he's feeling better than ever, I I think that's because of this spiritual journey that he's been on. And at this point he's dedicated himself to the golden rule. So that he's starting a nonprofit foundation to promote the idea of living by the golden rule. And, um, you know, that's something that, that I see him continuing to do. Um, and when he talks about the great musicians that he performed with, um, like Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, you know, he says that, uh, that they live by that, that, that was really, uh, something that was important to them. And it's something that's important to him. Uh, so how's he doing? Um, it seems like he's he's doing well to me. That's great. That's yeah. great. It's funny you say that about the golden rule because uh, when when I don't know how long ago it was, but I said if we if 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 we all 
followed the golden rule, there'd be no Ten Commandments. <laughs> right, 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 right. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, all right. Well, Aiden, thanks for being a guest. Um, yeah, th- thanks for having me. We'd love to talk about the Lou book as well. I know that we'll was, have that you was back on for that if you'd like. Yes, and uh, seven oh, years. Yeah. That's 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 a, a real accomplishment to to have uh, to to keep at that and and to have this amazing uh, book out after all that hard hard work. Yeah, th- thank you. It was kind of a biblical journey. Seven years. <laughs> <laughs> and dare I ask you, what is your next project? Or is it too early to tell? Too early to tell. Too early okay. to tell. Yeah. Well, think about Louis Jordan. I'd love to read that. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll think about that one. I'll, th- right, I'll think sure. about it. Yeah. All right, Aiden. Well, thanks for thanks for uh, taking your time. Sorry, we started a half an hour late. I live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and is just there's just no moving up here. It's it's you know between the city bike lanes and and all the construction that's going on up here it's just oh i i understand uh, where, where I, in I, uh, I, new york are you i'm i'm not in new york oh actually. you're not in I'm, new york no i'm in lancaster pennsylvania wow can you see trees and sky there yeah i'm, I'm looking at <laughs> trees and sky right now actually uh, so we we moved here a couple of years ago okay after more than a dozen years in new york and but I still work in New York. Okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, up in Connecticut. We have more llamas than people here. I like yes. it very much. <laughs> yeah. We're in Connecticut. Uh, I'm up in Litchfield County, uh, Woodbury, Connecticut. Oh, okay, yeah, I know. I, I'm from West Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, okay. okay good point. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, Aiden. Be well. We'll um, shoot you an email when this is going to broadcast. I think we've got two more episodes of Mark Myers, who just wrote another fabulous book. Uh, and that'll oh, yeah. give a song, you know, Mark is, is a mm-hmm. one. And then uh, we'll hope to sell some Sonny Send Rollins some books. Okay. All right, great. Well, thanks so much for having me. All right, and be yeah, well. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Okay. Take Bye. care. Another great interview. Hey, folks, we are just on fire. Three things I want to say before we close out this show. We've got another six interviews coming up with authors. Yes, Tom and I actually read the books. It's an incredible thing. It's called reading. And what we do is we open something that's about eight by ten, <laughs> sometimes big books, and we look at it and there's this black stuff all over these pages. What's that? And it's words. And we actually read those words. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart. And I want the stats. Then we take notes. And then we come up with ideas for shows. So we've got a bunch of authors coming on. Author, author. Author, author, author. So, yes, another great interview. Uh, Aiden Levy, of course. The book is Sonny Rollins, Saxophone Colossus. And uh, we will have Aiden back to talk about his other book, uh, Dirty Boulevard, The Life and Music of Lou Reed. But let's uh, give folks a little insight into our Sonny Rollins playlist. Well, we're going to be playing music. <laughs> all right, let's not get too deep into it then. I don't want to give it all away. There's some great songs on this, including a tune that Sonny Rollins and uh, John Coltrane play on, a tune called Tenor Madness. Wow. Okay, another great show. Okay, take it away, Sonny Rollins. <laughs> 